Hello and welcome to Not If I Reboot You First, a podcast where we take our favorite properties and reboot them before Hollywood has the chance to. Uh, it's a little bit like brainstorming fanfiction. I'm Lindsay and I use she, her pronouns. I'm Tanner and I use they, them pronouns. And I, I don't know. I don't know what we're doing tonight except Toronto. Toronto Vampires. This week we're talking about uh, Blood Ties. Have you ever heard of that one? I, I still I still don't know what this is. I've never heard of it. Okay. So Blood Ties was a uh, two-season spanning Canadian vampire detective series set in Toronto based off of the book of the of the book series called The Blood Books by Tanya Huff. Uh, and it focuses on a private investigator and a vampire and a cop. Huh. Yeah. Like th- three separate people? Yeah, they're three separate people. Okay. Yeah. So we have an actual cop, we have a private investigator, and then we have a vampire who's just there. <laughs> well, that's because they all solve supernatural related crimes. Unlicensed vampire investigator. <laughs> well, anyway, um, quick summary. Um... Basically, the main character, uh, Vicki Nelson, she's a former Toronto PD detective who had to quit because um, she developed a condition uh, that was basically going to render her blind in a couple of years. It's an actual thing. Oh, okay. Uh, let's see. There's a few of those she... out there, yeah. Yeah. Uh, she specifically has retinitis pigmentosa. So it's a progressive genetic disorder um, that leads to uh, loss of vision. Symptoms include uh, trouble seeing at night and decreased peripheral vision. Um, So, yeah, like after a while, she wouldn't be able to see. And that's kind of bad if you can't, if you don't have proper peripheral vision. Yeah. Like, uh, (laughs) mine's pretty shot, but I can still, like, see movement. Mm Mm-hmm. Um... Anyway, the vampire is a guy named Henry Fitzroy, who is, um, he moonlights as a writer of, um, I think under Henry Fitzroy, he writes graphic novels, and under Elizabeth Fitzroy, he writes romance novels. (laughs) Like, what kind of romance novels? Bodice Rippers? I think so. Oh, good. He doesn't really say what exactly he does, but, like... It fits because he's actually the uh, vampiric illegitimate son of Henry VIII. Huh. Yeah. So uh, Henry Fitzroy was a real person. Uh, Just let me bring him up. Was he a real vampire? He wasn't a vampire as far as we know. Mostly because he died at 17 from... (laughs) From tuberculosis. Anyway, uh, Henry, Henry Fitzroy, Allegedly. the Duke of Richmond and Somerset, uh, born June 15th, 1519, died July 23rd, 1536. Uh, he was the son of Henry VIII and his then mistress, Elizabeth Blount, who's also called Betsy Blount, or Bessie Blount. Um, he was the only acknowledged illegitimate child of Henry because at the time, like he was born after uh, Mary, the future Mary the first and the future Elizabeth the first. So as a reminder, you're the history major. I am the English yeah. major. So I, I don't have an inherent knowledge of the French nobility. English. But, 
Oh, all right, English nobility. Wasn't there a French Henry? Yeah, there were four Hen- French Henrys. Okay. The last one was assassinated um, because he was a Protestant, even though he had converted to Catholicism so that he could be king of uh, of France because France is weird. Then Now, didn't one of them become a king of England as well, but then they started numbering with the English Henrys instead of the French Henrys? Or am I conv- confusing two completely separate kingdoms and names? Uh, well, the first... French Henry was also the fifth English Henry. Um, so Henry V, who would be Henry VIII's great-grandfather on his paternal grandmother's side. No, great-great-grandfather, I think. No, no, he wouldn't. They would just be cousins. Because... Edmund Tudor was the son of Catherine of Valois and her secret relationship with Owen Tudor. And she was married to Henry, <laughs> Henry V. Yeah, there's a lot of Henrys. Anyway, at I'm some point... I'm just surprised the th- fact that you have all of this off the top of your head. You did not Google a single thing in this conversation. <laughs> well, I had to quickly Google um, Henry Fitzroy just to get like his birth date and his death date. Right. <laughs> okay. So anyway, uh, Henry Fitzroy... At one point, he was turned into a vampire, probably around 17. And tuberculosis does have a history of being associated with vampirism because, you know, you cough up blood. Yeah. And at least in North America, um, specifically New England, there was a couple of vampire scares in the 1800s. And um, they tended to coincide with outbreaks of TB. That makes sense. Yeah. So... Uh, this Henry becomes a vampire at some point. He ends up in Canada. He, he's been all over the place. He knows everybody, basically. <laughs> um, one of the obvious tropes in this series is Beethoven was a space alien. Uh, was a space alien spy. Was he actually? or? Um, I don't know about Beethoven. Were there aliens in this vampire show? There are extra-dimensional beings. In the spinoff series. It's got a spinoff too, dang. Yeah. Well, not like a spinoff TV series that's been in development hell for a long ass time. Um, but in the spinoff books trilogy, okay. uh, they talk about another dimension where magic developed um, ahead of science. So, um, okay. I haven't read those books, but it's almost, it kind of comes off like how in Full Metal Alchemist, Alchemy. Uh, developed right. before science. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and the cop is just like Vicky's ex-boyfriend and a police detective. He is very much the straight man to all of this because Vicky, uh, she gets in deep with the supernatural when she starts out her paranormal stuff. Um, she witnesses a murder, but she's not entirely sure what she sees because, of course, she's going blind. And um, she saw it at night, too. So, like, yeah, she's losing her night vision first. And yes, humans don't have that great of night vision, but, you know, you could still walk around in the middle of the night, and as long as you don't, like, accidentally turn on a light, you can still see stuff. Somewhat. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm gonna be a weirdo, but, like, if I need to get up and use the bathroom in the middle of the night, I won't even turn on the lights in the bathroom. That is kind of (laughs) creepy. I mean, I don't want to be alone in a dark bathroom. 
Well, I'm just like, I don't want to turn on the lights, and then I'm going to be blind, and then it's going to take me forever to fall back asleep, so... And I'm only in there for, like, two minutes, maybe? I No, I don't care. If I'm getting up in the middle of the night, every light in my path is getting turned on. <laughs> because I know I'm going to trip over the stuff I keep on my floor. Ah. I just have uh, clothes all over the floor. Oh yeah, I'll trip over clothes. You and I have very different senses of balance. I can trip over anything. I can't be stopped. That is true. You are indeed a real-life version of Barry from <laughs> Pokemon Diamond, Pearl, and Platinum. Yeah. Anyway, uh, the general overview of the series when it got adapted into a TV series for Lifetime. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Lifetime picked it up for two years. It's ironic because one of the main characters is undead. <laughs> um, it's pretty Monster of the Week, uh, but there is a... The plot, I would say, isn't so much like there's a great dark power trying to take over the world. It's more like we have personal issues to deal with. It's all about personal growth and development. Okay. Yeah. Um, also, you know, our vampires are different trope too. So in this case, um, it's kind of how I developed my one idea for vampires that I mentioned way back when we did the Night School series. Right. So, quick overview about my idea was that, you know, they have to have blood because otherwise they turn into ghouls and, you know, they get older and they kind of lose their uh, abilities and all that. In Blood Ties, the best way I can describe vampire behavior is that they're kind of like tigers or like big cats. Okay. Oh, okay. So, except for lions, most big cats are fairly solitary. Um, though they're okay with interacting with uh, other cats that they know, mostly like their own family. Um, and they tend to have uh, territory that they're pretty defensive of. Territory varies in size uh, related to density and how many humans are in the area. Okay. So in Tanya House Vampires, they are fairly territorial. So basically Henry is like the only vampire in Toronto and he kind of likes to keep other vampires out, partially because he's fairly protective of wherever he lives, partially because he doesn't like other vampires on his turf. This is the, these are my people to suck blood from. Get the fuck out. Find your own place. Hmm. So, um. For all of Toronto. Toronto's pretty huge. You'd think he'd, like, there'd be room for a few vampires in there. Yeah, I, I guess because, you know, you don't want to be crowded with too many vampires like in vampire the masquerade where it's just vampires for days yeah you can't swing a stake without hitting a few yeah um so like the big difference i think because i've seen i've read a lot of vampire fiction and i think because of the influence of vampire the masquerade most people tend to go towards vampires being very social like, they have their clans, or the, a coven. Um, in the Parasol Protectorate, vampires are like beehives, where you have a queen vampire and her drones. And they make honey? Uh, it's weird. And I also think it's implied that the queen doesn't have to be female. Yas, girl. And that's kind of become the rule when you write your vampires. They tend to have like very hierarchical... A uh, very like you have the progenitor and their children, 
or their coven or however they structure their society. Whereas I kind of like the idea of like a solitary predator or like they're kind of okay with other vampires in their area. I would imagine that in real life, like if you're in a more densely populated area, like say, um, yeah, Toronto, you would probably have like at least a handful of vampires but like one would be for downtown toronto one would be for markham one would be for wait no markham isn't in the air well one would be for like um one of the neighborhoods uh another would be for a different suburb and they would try to like kind of keep out of each other's way yeah like that makes sense if if it was a really small town like you would have one and they would also cover a bigger geographical area yeah exactly but yeah, if it's a really big place like Toronto where there's a lot more population density, you can definitely get several vampires in there. And they would know all the borders of each other's territories. And if they're going into other people's territories, they'd have to like meet and greet and understand like, hey, I'm not hunting. I'm just passing. Listen, this I have to go through this on my commute. <laughs> like, I'm going to be late for work if I don't take this one line. I'm sorry I'm disturbing your shit, okay? If I may bring in Twilight for a moment. Okay. Well, it was no, when you think about Twilight and the absolute minimum that Stephanie Meyer put into the vampire mythology there, yeah. th- it's kind of a middle between what you're talking about and the usual kind of like true blood aristocracy kind of thing that we see quite often, yeah. where you definitely had the clans, but the clans were bas- essentially family units, yeah. and they had their own territory, and if other groups were passing through, like... They would meet and be civil, but they also made it clear, this is our area. You're you're not staying here. Like, have some fun, play some baseball, and be on your way. Yeah. And I think part of that is kind of a security measure. Because, like, if you're having a whole bunch of people die in one area, people are going to be suspicious. And that is literally what happened in the third book. Yeah. My thought is, like, because vampire myths um, tended to be linked to disease and all that, like, I think the first instinct would be um, if the scene isn't particularly bloody, if like a whole bunch of people start wasting away, you're calling like whatever health authority is in the area first. Yeah. Nowadays with the vampire aristocracy, like I imagine they're linked to that because we have this idea of the aristocracy being all big and fancy and flouncy and having messed up family lines much more messed up than being undead yeah and i feel like um yeah the way that the big aristocracy kind of works it would almost be a bit in um kind of walk against them after a while anyway blood ties um as i said mostly monster of the week and basically what i want to do is a revival of the series because it was good nice the acting was good so is this like a fantasy kitchen sink situation yeah um like at one point, they uh, Henry ends up dating a succubi. Nice. A bunch of victims surround a uh, an incubus, so they do have that reputation. It isn't just sexy ladies sucking dick, <laughs> dick energy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> though he was the he was the hot gardener, not the hot pool boy. <laughs> Um, Hang on, I gotta take a shot of five-hour big dick energy. (laughs) (laughs) They've dealt with, like, secret orders. Uh, There was one episode that adapted a novel where the, um, it was basically mummies. Like, uh, both the Brendan Fraser mummy and the older, like, one with Christopher Lee. Like, 
resurrected mummy and this one worshipped a particular god that might have been some weird version of Set. Okay. They even involved the Set creature. And there was a little boy named Presley who found a secret out that year. (laughs) Yeah, like the Set creature gets involved. I think at one point they do have a Wendigo, but Wendigo is a bit problematic because like the Algonquin people are like, we have more than just the Wendigo. Yeah. It's a little concerning when you go to the marginalized group's mythology and you're like, oh, a cannibal beast? Yeah, this is the only thing we need to represent you guys. Okay, thanks, bye. Yeah, there's more going on, but at the same time, like, good idea for how to personify, you know, cold, winter, hunger, that greed. Yeah, it's just, hey, we've personified a lot more. Yeah, Um, I also think that in one... If I remember correctly, because I've I've just been reading the summaries for the past bit, um, they also touched upon like shadow people, like some of the more modern stuff that was happening. Because hmm. this show came out in two thousand eight, two thousand seven. You know, we were both into SCP and the burgeoning creepy pasta stuff. I creepy, hadn't gotten into it like, quite yet. Okay, but like Slenderman wasn't quite a thing. But like, you know, I like my supernatural podcast where like people just talk about this stuff. Oh yeah. So shadow people have been kind of a thing since like ever. Like there's something inherently kind of disturbing about your own shadow, and people have different reactions to it. And it there's a lot of links to like sleep paralysis in all that, which is oh a, the old hag. Yeah, the old hag. Our good friend, old hag. Nightmares. A literal demonic horse that's trying to suck out your soul. That's one version of the story. I think that's like the Nordic version. I have not heard the horse version. Look it up. Like, the word for nightmare, like, M-A-R-E at the end, same for mare as in female horse. I can't believe horses have been trying to stomp us to death with their hooves for centuries. (laughs) Henry just inherently distrusts horses because he believes they are all supernatural demons. (laughs) You know, you mentioned Slenderman, and Slenderman is actually in the public domain, so we could just have Slenderman show up. We could probably do a better job than that uh, really bad horror movie that came out a couple years ago. Yeah, it wasn't even that long ago. I'm pretty sure it was last year, and it had, like, nothing to do with the actual Slenderman-ness. Mythos. And then, ooh, if we hint at the interdimensional stuff early on enough, we could get in stuff like Indrid Cold and Mothman. Our good buddy Mothman. <laughs> My husband. <laughs> Your spooky husband. Yes. Hey, hey, is is this just um Canadian Taz Amnesty? little bit but this came out way before taz amnesty so that's that's true but i'm just i'm 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 feeling your vibes through the computer screen yeah and i think i'm feeling what you're feeling also i know exactly how to summon you all i gotta do is say mothman three times and you will manifest in my mirror yeah that's true (laughs) i'll flutter around trying to get the light fixtures oh wait no i won't because you won't turn them on that's only in the middle of the night when I need to pee. <laughs> anyway, a mare, a mare from the Old English mare, Old Dutch mare, or mara, which is also high, Old High German and Old Norse, is a malicious entity in Germanic and Slavic folklore that rides on people's chests while they're asleep, bringing on bad dreams. So yeah, there's just something about that that's fucking creepy. Same with shadows, same with weird guys with really pale faces and dark suits. 
I'm trying to nap and Bojack Horseman just keeps slapping me. <laughs> Look, he isn't feeling that great and he needs to get his feelings off his chest. By sitting on your chest. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm trying to think. Toronto. See, the one downside of it being in Toronto is that since it's, like, landlocked, we can't do fun stuff like Selkies or Sea Beasts. It's actually on, I think, Lake Ontario. Is there a critter in Lake Ontario? Uh, Lake Ontario water monster. There's gotta be some sort Yes! The giant serpent of Lake Ontario. Oh, perfect. From the Torontist. Every lake should have a monster, and Lake Ontario is no exception. Uh, this is also written by Patrick Metzger. I just want to give the proper credit. Uh, Toronto summers can be hot and sticky, and it's a pet peeve for the residents that local beaches are sometimes off-limits to swimmers due to high levels of pollution. Oh yeah, Lake Ontario is polluted as fuck. But what if it's not just water quality that keeps us from frolicking the, in the waves? What if the powers that be don't want us to know that the waters of Lake Ontario harbor something far more sinister than E. coli? Say a gigantic monster with razor-sharp teeth and a taste for human flesh. Oh, Lord. Yeah, so... It's just a little steak. <laughs> it's just a little creature. Uh, centuries ago, Seneca legends told of a huge beast called the... I'm going to butcher this. Uh, Gessianditha that inhabited the depths of the lake. Uh, the description of the creature as a, a serpent lake is consistent with other accounts, although it, unlike other rumored... Uh, Lake Ontario water monster supposedly had the ability to fly and shoot fire from its mouth. Yay! Um, it was written about on August 14th of 1829 in the Kingston Gazette and Religious Advocate. It reported that children playing on the beach at Grantham, now present-day St. Catharines, had spotted a hideous water snake or serpent of prodigious dimensions. I think it also got mentioned on Murdoch Mysteries. Oh, of course it did, because they're writing out of ideas. They have to bring up everything. Yeah. But I'm pretty sure I've heard of other stories across America about flying and fire-breathing lake serpents that were discussed by the local First Nations groups. So, yeah. like, obviously everyone is going to have their own different one, but that's definitely a common thing throughout the lore and beliefs on this continent. I think in a lot of places, because there's a um, a river monster, I want to say in the Congo region of Africa, that some think might actually be a dinosaur. Just straight up like a brontosaurus or something. I have heard of that one too. Yeah. Um, yeah, like even, I, some people have said that like these kinds of myths are essentially the Canadian edition of dragons for the First Nations groups. Because everyone has some manner of dragon or serpent mythos folklore beliefs yeah and like remember in the monsters ghosts and demons class i love referencing this class it was like the best class we ever took exactly the profs brought up this one theory about dragons being kind of like a a very ancient cultural memory we have of when we were prey animals basically to our biggest predators were snakes birds of prey and large cats and dinosaurs yeah <laughs> Um, Take that, science. Anyway, the theory goes is that our monkey brains basically combine them into one giant monster that was out to get us because it has, like, you know, the claws of a large cat. It's reptilian and scaly like a snake, and it can fly like an eagle. 
into the sea. Well, also, the Great Lakes are scary. They're they're huge. Yeah, at least one of them is haunted. I think they they've all got ghost ships. Lake Erie, a couple of ships have straight up disappeared. That's spooky. Yeah. You might even uh, say it's eerie. <laughs> Yo, what did you expect when you named it that? Yeah, that's true. And of course, there's like Ogopogo out west. But like that's, that we'd have to save Ogopogo for, a, I don't know, a vacation episode. Well, in the sequel series, they also head out to Vancouver, so. Oh, okay, there you go. Yeah. And I like me vancouver i i do honestly prefer victoria a bit more because you know it's kind of got that more rustic feeling that older victorian feeling because it's old as fuck by like canadian standards Mm -hmm. when it comes to colonial settlements but like and i'm pretty sure way more ghosts way more (laughs) but yeah like vancouver's pretty cool like speaking of ghosts and going back to the lakes i definitely read a story where a kid was almost dragged to the bottom of one of the great lakes by skeletons I wouldn't be surprised. Again, the, those lakes have to have something in them. What if the Toronto Lake Serpent is fighting off an army of skeletons and our power trio has to help it? Yes. And also, also, the power trio does deal with uh, zombies, but not in the usual Walking Dead manner. They're a bit more in line with uh, Voodoo and zombies, which, okay, that's another potential source of problematic stuff, but at the same time, like, we haven't seen voodoo zombies in a long time. And zombies are an actual thing, and, like, there's stereotypes about zombies in voodoo, but there are actual zombies in voodoo practices. Yeah. Um. So as long as we get someone on site who can, like, proofread stuff and sensitivity read and make sure that everything is up to snuff then we can do it and hey it's not yet another zombie plague of slow moving rotting corpses i mean if we want to do something different we can uh, have them encounter a lich yes good old slavic styled lich yep um i'm also what was it um okay so again with the serpent when you're reading that article and the guy talked about how the powers that be are trying to cover it up what if there's like some kind of burgeoning men in black style group that's trying to just cover everything up in toronto but they're hilariously incompetent and our main characters are the only ones actually getting stuff done oh my god we could totally like make this a bit of a period piece and set it during the the rob ford years oh gosh that would be a period piece in a few years yeah (laughs) oh is rob ford a lich his main source of power is crack cocaine <laughs> or money. <laughs> yeah, those are both options. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's got his soul hidden in like one $100 bill that's hidden in a stack of $100 bills. Ah, that bastard. Maybe also attach a curse to the or some sort of magical properties to the Stanley Cup, because guess what's also in Toronto? The Hockey Hall of Fame. Nice. Okay, what would the Stanley Cup's magic powers do? Is it secretly the Grail, or is that too obvious? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe they're like, it can't be the Grail, that's way too obvious! Oh no, it actually is the Grail. The hockey players are right when it comes to being superstitious about it. I'm trying to think of other famous cups. So apparently NHL players aren't allowed to touch the 
or at least they say that they're not supposed to touch the uh, Stanley Cup until they actually win it. You can stand beside it, you can take pictures of it, but you can't touch it. And you're definitely not supposed to hoist it until you actually win it. I mean, there's so much ceremony around it. We could say that, like, it just became... It's it, like the Stanley Cup is in secretly another magical item. The Stanley Cup has become magical item through all of the ritual around it. Oh, which also ties into the uh, mummy episode because uh, the way that the this uh, mummy's personal god works is that he believed in it so hard, it became real. And then the power trio, as they came to investigate it and start to think about it and start to believe that it was real, the god gained more power from that. So because everyone believes in the power of the Stanley Cup, at some point the spirit of the Stanley Cup manifests. (laughs) As a hockey player. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, like I can totally see like different uh, bits of sports paraphernalia having power or like uh, the belief in a sports curse, like how the Cubs didn't win a World Series for over 100 years because of the whole goat thing. Or for Boston, the curse of the Bambino. Babe Ruth got traded to the Yankees and he's like, fuck this place. And they didn't win for 82 years. Take that, science. (laughs) Believe. (laughs) Okay, we've talked a lot about Monster of the Week stuff. Let's learn more about the characters. Because you said it really is more about their kind of interactions than any kind of overarching darkness. Yeah, which I I do appreciate a series like that because a lot of these uh, occult mystery series tend to eventually have like the big, we have to say, the world plot. Just going to say that right now. Supernatural was really bad for that. Yeah, but also like Supernatural was kind of designed for that. Same with Buffy. They weren't trying to force it into a certain thing necessarily. Yeah. Whereas this definitely has more the vibes of a police procedural so any overarching villains, per se, would have more personal stakes than trying to destroy the world. Yeah. So we're going to start off with Vicky because she's the main point of view character. Um, she's a former police officer. She turns private investigator after she gets diagnosed with her progressive uh, disorder, um, renitis uh, pigmentosa. Um, and she used to work homicide basically. So a lot of her work ends up being solving murder mysteries because that's how this thing goes. You can't just, you know, look into embezzlement schemes. Nope. It's got to be murder every single time because the audience loves blood and gore. I have opinions about, you know, the reliance on murder for all mystery series, but that's for another episode. Mm -hmm. So prior to her leaving uh, Toronto PD was involved with Detective Mike Salucci, and he wanted her to stay and, you know, try and make her physical situation work, but she's like, no, I gotta go, I don't want to, you know, it's time. And then she witnesses the whole murder thing, that's how she comes across Henry Fitzroy, because people are like, oh, well, this Henry Fitzroy guy, he's kind of weird, and he kind of knows everything. So talk to him. Turns out it is supernatural. And yes, this is in his wheelhouse. Does Henry make a habit out of solving crimes before he gets embroiled in uh, Vicky's stuff? Or is he just like a consultant at the beginning? He's mostly a consultant at the beginning, but he also likes it because I think this is common to a lot of like older vampires that they kind of get bored. Well, yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. And I'm not saying, like, he just does this out of sheer need for stimulation, but, like, I got that that was a big part of it. And also because, like, 
as I said earlier, he is protective of wherever he's living. He wants the city to be safe because it also makes his life easier. So anyway, she meets Henry Fitzroy. He starts assisting her. Um, they form a romantic relationship. And basically, Vicky is Polly. Oh, good job. Yeah, she's involved with... She's Polly M. Yeah, she's Polly M. Uh, she's involved with her ex and with uh, Henry. Eventually, you know, she's got to break up with both of them because, uh, spoilers, she has to become a vampire after she gets fatally wounded and they do the emergency. Oh, turn you into a vampire to save you. Oh, dang. Did she consent to that? Yeah. Okay, good. But as I said earlier, with this sort of vampire behavior, having long-term relationships is kind of complicated, especially with another vampire. So you'd think it'd be a little easier because both vamps are immortal now. But as I said, they're territorial. Um, okay. So Henry had a relationship with the vampire woman who turned him into a vampire. And like at first, like basically you spent about like a year or two learning from your progenitor on how to be a vampire, how how you hunt, how you conceal yourself, all that sort of stuff. All the things that you need to know. When it comes to long-term relationships, they eventually break down because, again, you get territorial and you're like, no, this is mine. Get the fuck out. Damn, those millennial vampires are just won't move out of their parents' houses. <laughs> Old school vampires like, when will you leave the basement? <laughs> <laughs> But dad or no dad I need to pay rent and the job doesn't pay enough. You have 500 years of money that you've accumulated. <laughs> so Vicky also maintains a good relationship with the rest of Toronto PD because uh she needs them for forensic help. Can't exactly go well, to yeah, naturally. go to a private lab all the time that gets hella expensive um and from the tv show like um i found her to be very she's kind of the straight man to henry's eccentric dude but at the same time like henry is a 400 something year old vampire like of course it can be kind of weird i gotta look up pictures of these people because i have no idea who they've even been played by vicky was played by christina cox henry was played by kyle schmidt dylan neal played mike salucci and Gina Hoden played Corrine Fennell. Um, I think Corrine became an assistant to Vicky after she was introduced. Oh, okay. Yeah. Anyway, Henry, he's, of course, the illegitimate son of Henry VIII and Elizabeth Blout, born in 1519 and died of what appeared to be uh, tuberculosis in 1563. The real cause of his illness and death and quotation marks was a vampire bite and he rose from his grave to live on as a vampire aging very slowly so no he is not a 17 year old he's a full-grown man by this point it just took him a long time to get there yeah so i was looking at the cast and of the main three and i don't recognize them from a single thing but all three of them have been on completely separate episodes of arrow <laughs> what a small world well, it's there are all those CW shows are filmed in Vancouver, so okay, it's just how it shakes out. So anyway, um, he now lives in Toronto, where he earns a living writing romance novels, and uh, well, that was changed to graphic novels in the TV series. But like, I like the idea that he writes graphic no novels under one name and romance novels under another name. 
also romance novels tend to sell better when you have a woman's name plastered on it because you know the pink ghetto oh yeah i understand that it would make sense if he wrote the graphic novels under a pseudonym too though because he's writing them to make a living but like he's not pursuing fame and fortune yeah and it'd be pretty inconvenient if fans showed up while he was hungry i imagine yeah that's true well he probably can easily pull some dead person's name or some old pseudonym that he did use back in like the 1600s or whatever Mm -hmm. change up the spelling a little bit it's easy to fake an identity when you know what to do as someone who has done genealogical research into my family sometimes the only information you get is like when they were baptized and when they were buried so yeah The big thing about Henry is that Tanya Huff kind of went out of her way to subvert the then popular uh, heroic vampire tropes. All right. And Rice's vampires were still king. So that meant a lot of very conflicted and reluctant vampires who didn't want to drink blood because it would mean losing their humanity. But they must because of the thirst. (laughs) (laughs) So Henry actually is comfortable with it i can't say he enjoys it a lot but you know he he has a policy that he doesn't kill his victims he's killed a few on occasion but attributes this to vampire instinct that has been shown to turn at least one victim when he took too much and he only drinks from basically consenting partners Like, he forms a relationship with someone, and eventually he reveals his vampiric nature, and he's like, okay, are you okay if I take some blood? I'm not going to take a lot, and I'm not going to do it from the neck. Uh, It's usually done from, like, the wrist area. Blood buddies. Yeah. (laughs) It's just bros helping bros out. (laughs) And also, he's canonically bisexual. Nice. Yeah. I don't think it was shown all that often in the TV series, but... Yeah, it was very much part of the text. In fact, the... I'm not saying you have to be bisexual to be a vampire, but it definitely helps. Yeah. I think the implication is that just over time, gender and sexuality kind of become, like, a lot more... I mean, it would be a situation where they, they were obviously were, um, would be have been bi or pan or whatever the entire time, and it's just yeah. given enough time to get over whatever hangups were in their original culture when they were turned... Of course, they're going to figure it out. Well, I'm just like, as as a historian, like, um, people back in the day didn't have our current language for describing our gender and sexuality. Not saying that they didn't have that language at all. They probably had their own way of talking about it. Um, also, this is a lot of going back into the historical record and reevaluating a person's gender and sexuality. Oh, yeah. Um, also trying to get out of the binary of they're either straight or they're uh, gay. Yeah. Or a lesbian. Precisely. I mean, the one thing I am worried about is that the um, idea, the trope of someone who's immortal becoming bisexual or pansexual because they've been around so long it always kind of rubbed me a little bit the wrong way because that usually gets tied into stuff about how like as they live longer their morals kind of erode and like and now they're just totally steeped in debauchery and sexual wackiness and that includes having bisexual relations and oh yeah um so i like the idea that someone was always of this sexuality and they were just it, it took them approximately three centuries to figure it out but hey they were always this way 
And then I'd be fascinated if another vampire showed up and it's like, I've been around for a thousand years and I'm still only attracted to women. And I've tried and it, it doesn't work. I'm just, it's only women. Okay. Yeah. And as I said, sometimes they just didn't have the language to actually say what I am. Yeah. So it's like, oh, thank God you created this word. I can finally exactly describe what I am. Or it's like, huh. Like, if you get, like, an older vampire, like, say they're from, like, Sumeria or, like, like 5,000 years old. And they're kind of like, huh, that's an interesting way that you put it. Because, like, in in the culture that I was born into, we described it as, like, this, that, and the other thing. Yeah. Fun fact, intersex people and uh, gender queer people were considered protected under Ishtar and Inanna in ancient Mesopotamian religions. And those two are the goddesses of love, war, and sex. Nice. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I've heard that before. Yeah. You got really good protection if you're under the most capricious goddess in the entire pantheon. Like, I'm, I'm not going to mince words. And Anna was kind of a bitch. Oh, yeah. She was queen <laughs> bitch of fuck city. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking about casting, and obviously we would want Canadians for this cast. Yes. But... More diverse. Immediately the first person who came to my head when we were talking about Vicky was Gemma Chan. Yes. And I think no matter which way we go, I would like to have Vicky be of Asian heritage. I don't know yeah. why. There's no really justification. It just that was the immediate first picture as you described the character. And... I'm like, there isn't enough representation of Asian people in heroic roles as main characters, just in general. Yeah. Law enforcement, for that matter. Um, and also, specifically, like, outside of martial arts stuff. Yeah. I think the closest we've got, I mean, I don't watch very many police procedurals these days, but I think the like the biggest one we've had in the past while has been Joan in elementary, and she wasn't technically in law enforcement. She was, well, I guess she was private investigator, and that's what Vicky is, but Vicky was yeah. a police officer beforehand. Yeah, whereas Joan, well, she's Dr. John Watson. She's a doctor. Exactly. Even if she gave up her medical practice, but like, there's there's reasons why. I can't think of actors and actresses from Canada in the age range we're looking at because I only know people if they were on Degrassi. <laughs> uh, there's probably a couple from like the first few seasons of Next Generation who might fit the bill. Oh, perhaps. Um, oh, what if Alan Hocko was Henry? That might work. Um, the thing about the Tudors, though, is that the they have a super strong redhead gene. Okay. Yeah. That's something I would like to keep, actually. Okay. Because, like, it screams, oh, yeah, you are Henry VIII's son. Unfortunately, in a lot of period dramas that focus on the Tudor era, they tend to just get actors and actresses who, yeah, they can act and all that. But, like, Catherine the Great is always always very Hispanic. Okay, Yes, she's very Hispanic looking because she is Hispanic, but she's European Hispanic. Her mom had fucking blonde hair. And her family was full of blondes and redheads. Almost to the detriment of their family because they started, like, uncle-niece marriages all the time. Henry VIII's mom was a noted blonde, same as her mother and her father. Basically, you could... There's pictures of all these people and... A large amount of them have shockingly red hair or shockingly blonde hair. And Arthur Darville is technically a redhead, according to an IMDb list I stumbled upon. Okay, 
So tell him to get whatever dye is in his hair out, <laughs> if it's doable. I mean, I think it just, his redheaded gene is not as strong as... as... Yeah. Like, the last time I saw a redheaded actor play Henry VIII, it was Damien Lewis in Wolf Hall. To the point that people commented on, like, oh, we finally have a redhead playing Henry. The most famous redheaded monarch, <laughs> aside from his daughter Elizabeth. Because after then, the, uh, the royals have been, like, perpetual brunettes with the occasional blonde. Yeah. Yeah, sorry for Lindsay's historical inaccuracy rant, but that does piss me off that the most famous redheaded royal family of all time is often portrayed by brunettes. No, that's fine. So I guess Henry would be an English actor. Doesn't necessarily have to be Canadian. Yeah, like, um, Kyle Schmidt didn't bother with an accent, and I would honestly leave that up to the actor in particular because the English accent has changed significantly since the 1500s, so... That's also a valid point. Like, maybe a compromise could be, like, you know, that old, old-timey old English accent that people used in, like, the the 40s and 50s, like a Catherine Hepburn sort of fancy-sounding American accent where you're really enunciating all of your words. Vaguely British, but you still pronounce things rather American-like. Very quickly, too. Very clipped. Yeah. I mean... We can search for actors till the cows come home. I feel like for what the kind of people we're looking for, we're going to get uh, medium clout yeah. at best. I see this being a uh, a stars production. Yeah, it would yeah, be. I think we're shooting for stars more than likely going to be on space. I hate to say it because I would like to pitch this to HBO simply because they got money for for the stuff. But like we could also get tax breaks from Toronto. I mean, space has decent money, too. Yeah. And... You know, I like I like when a genre show doesn't have the best special effects. Yeah. I like it when they're just passable enough. <laughs> and it's like, look, we're not looking for anything special. We just need like a shadow demon once in a while. Yeah. Like I want this to look just as good as the show that was made in 2008. Yes. I don't need a high definition ah, Mothman, but that would be nice if you could do it. But yeah, I think unless you have anything to add to Blood Ties New Blood Ties? The brand new Blood I don't know, which is called yeah, Blood Ties. Yeah, Blood Ties. Um, I would like to get, um, I would say, about four seasons to cover the books, do some extra stuff too, uh, because there's a lot of myths and legends that we can pull from and see if we could do the spinoff series that focuses on, um, oh, what was he called? Tony! Tony, that's the name. So Tony was uh, Henry's male partner for a bit. And uh, he's the one who goes to Vancouver because, surprise, surprise, he's also part of a film production company. And they run into some, some supernatural trouble on set. And it turns out, interdimensional wizards! Yay! Huh. Yeah. All right, then. Yeah, so potentially a backdoor pilot for another series focusing on interdimensional wizards in Vancouver. Get all that sweet, sweet, cloudy Vancouver sky. Yep. Hi, Stargate SG-1. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think my uh, blood smoothie's done. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, in that case, you can go take a sip of that, and uh, we'll cut to a friendship promo. Relive the majesty. When a spark goes online, there's great joy. When one's extinguished, the universe weeps. comedy. It's like I always say, we're all gonna die. 
Daoud and James as they dive through the archives of the maximal exploration vessel, Axelon, and rediscover the series that brought the Transformers back to the 90s. Beast Wars! The Axelon Archive, available wherever you find podcasts. <sighs> I would just like to say I'm not a vampire, I was just joking. Okay. And that was a bit of a reference to uh Carmilla that I was going for. The web series? Uh the Carmilla the YouTube series. Okay. Yeah. Not the original Carmilla. They had they Carmilla the book did not invent a smoothie. No. <laughs> no, but there was uh in the YouTube series <laughs> there was a lot of obviously cornstarch and uh food dye that was put into like those big drinking cups that people have nowadays <laughs> so Lindsay, where can you be found on the internet i can be found at lindsaym476 on twitter that's Lindsay spelled with an a and you can get to all my other social media bullshits from there tanner where can people find you you can find me on twitter at sparky upstart and on instagram at sparky young upstart you can also find this very podcast at n-i-i-r-y-f pod those are the letters for not if i reboot you first and they're pronounced toronto <laughs> um and you can find this very podcast on instagram at not if i reboot you first uh that's all one word and the hashtag that we follow is n-i-i-r-y-f that is pronounced uh the 416 <laughs> you can also email us at not if i reboot you first at gmail.com or you can send us your comments critiques criticisms or your favorite bisexual vampire written bodice ripper novels you could even ask us to be a guest, but if you do, make sure you send us a hint instead of your entire idea because we like being surprised. If you'd like to support us directly, we have a Patreon at patreon.com slash first, where you can get a bevy of bonuses by supporting us financially, including a weekly shout-out for all of our patrons, including Charlie. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you. You can also rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice, and if you can't find us on your podcatcher of choice, then contact me and I'll try and get us in there. Last but not least, our cover art, as always, is by Alex, a.k.a. Pachu, and her work can be found on ptchew.com. And our theme music is done by our friend Sean Clake, and you can contact us to find out how to contact him if you'd like a music of his own for your own. So, Lindsay. So, Tanner. Next week, we've been managing to be pretty spooky all month, but next week is specifically our Halloween special. Ooh. And... To deal with the content of that episode, we are bringing in a guest for her expertise on the topic. Awesome. So next week, heads are going to roll. Oh, now I know. <laughs> this will be fun. So we are going to be talking about that next week, but not if we reboot you first. <laughs>